Hello, friends. Welcome to the podcast. This is Eric Ray, your host of the show. This is the Disco Posse podcast, and it is sponsored by some of our greatest friends. They're incredible friends. Please do check them out. Our episode today is brought to you by Veeam Software. I'm a longtime fan of the platform, the team, and the community that's wrapped around it. So if you want to find out more about everything you need for your enterprise data protection needs, whether it's in the cloud, on-premises, physical servers, even cloud native, go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. You can find out more, check it out. You can download trials, you can get connected, you can even buy it right on the spot. So please do go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Let them know that old Disco Posse sent you and just give a shout out to the fine friends over there. The show is also brought to you by Velocity Closing. If you're looking in the technical sales field or anywhere in technology evangelism or product marketing, and you want to be able to be better at connecting with customers and understanding how to tell the technical story of a platform in customer language, then you need the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. It's actually authored by yours truly. So I'm the author and I produce this guide because I'm in front of people every day. So go to velocityclosing.com. You can download the book. You can get access to the audiobook and tons more. We're actually got a really great special going on right now. So go check it out. Today's show features Joe Bakhti. Joe is the CEO and founder of QuantGene. They are on a mission to extend human healthy lifespan by 10 years. This is one of the most profound discussions I've had in as long as I can remember. Joe is fantastic. We go into everything about how to really run a zero to one type of growth business and just the problem that they can solve. So this is really gonna open up your mind and your heart. So check it out. And thank you very much to Joe Bakhti and the Quant Gene family for jumping in for a great show. Hi, everyone. I'm Joe Bakhti. I'm CEO and founder of QuantGene, and you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. You're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. And uh, with that, we, we begin. Let's change the world. Uh, and I, I don't often get to say that we are really having an impactful opportunity to do so. Uh, but Joe, you, you are doing something incredible with your, your company and your purpose that I have a massive respect for. And uh, you've, you've taken on a big task and one that I think is going to be close to home for anybody who's listening. So Joe, if you want to introduce yourself Let's uh, talk about you and, and, and talk about QuantGene and, and what we're doing there. And I'd really love to explore kind of the wrapping of a business around this, but I'd say the best thing place to start is, is why you're here and, and what you're doing, because it's it's very, very respectful goal that you've set in the mission that you're on. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Um, thanks for the kind words and thanks for having me on. So I'm, I'm the CEO and founder of QuantGene. We founded the company uh, in 2015 at UC Berkeley up in San Francisco. And um, our mission is to extend the healthy human lifespan by a decade within a decade, meaning by 10 years within the next 10 years. And uh, we didn't set this goal randomly. We set it 
because what we saw is we have this enormous confluence of technologies that give us all this tremendous power to change things. Um, and this confluence, especially in three, the three areas that make up Quantine, which is deep biotechnology, specifically genetics and genomics, uh, the cloud, meaning you know, internet, the cloud, cloud systems, and artificial intelligence. And these are three uh, areas that are rapidly evolving, each one on its own, but the confluence of these three, the intersection opens up a whole new world of precision medicine. And we, sent, uh, we set this goal of a decade within a decade. It's kind of an offensive goal, right? We want to get there and it's a lot to do, but at the same time, it's also to some extent looking back at the trajectory of medicine, um, starting at, the, at 1900. And when you see the progress medicine made, the good news is we extended human lifespan by a lot, by 35 years since then, which is tremendous. Um, but the bad news is that in the first 50 years from 1900 to 1950, we added 20 years to the average lifespan, which is enormous because we started all the way down at 45. Then in the next 50 years, we extended by another 10 years. And since then, we're actually flatlining since the year 2000. You're not making progress. And this curve, if you plot it, it's very concerning. You see that all this great stuff you hear about medicine happened in the first half of the 20th century. And since then it's going down. Now, some say that it's because we hit a wall. I think, and, and humans just can't live beyond 80 in average or something. I think that's the same logic you could have applied in the middle ages where you said, oh, we extended human lifespan from you know, 21 years to 28 because now we have this amazing agriculture but that's it. You're just not going to get older than 29. Like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the same logic here. And what we, what I believe, and I think we can back this up with <clears throat> scientific evidence is that the way we increased human lifespan so much was through three central paradigms in medicine, which is hygiene, pills, and surgery. That is what had the, an enormous impact. Hygiene and pills were aiming at uh, infectious diseases by far the number one killer in humanity uh, to that point. And, uh, you know, this, this modern age of medicine that was mostly invented back in the days in Berlin by a few people, Virtue and uh, Robert Koch and Ehrlich, like who basically founded that new idea of, oh, there are actually bugs you can kill with certain things. That allowed us to run all the way to the year 2000. <clears throat> by exploiting that capability. And that capability now is exploited. We, are, we have hygienic you know, hospitals. We understand what bacteria and viruses are to some extent. Um, and we can defend ourselves. We added surgery um, and made great progress there. But it's true that these technologies now are saturated. They're matured. You can't squeeze out another 10 years out of that. But what you can do is you can do a paradigm shift in medicine, sh shift your focus to the new killers, which is cancer, it's cardiovascular, it's new degenerative diseases, it's diabetes and metabolic and inflammatory conditions, chronic diseases, and build a new system of medicine on top of the old one that captures that problem. And these diseases are diseases of aging. And that's basically the bottom, like the framework of Quantine, where we then start to say, okay, how can we make a difference? How can we tackle this problem, which is much more a probabilistic problem. It's about a lot of numbers and statistics, a lot of data you need. Um, and that makes a big difference. And that's what we are betting on. Well, and it's, it's, a, it's a lofty and admirable 
goal. And I think that one that certainly cannot be made lightly because you, you have to have a personal mission that you've chosen and then to find a team to come along with you for the mission. Uh, as you say, there's, there's so much that's out there. And I think that, like you said, we, we look at the, the advances in technology and the, the, the sense of limitations. And it's, I mean, if we go back, like you said, in the, in the twenties and thirties, it would, it wouldn't have seen, it would be unfathomable to have thought to have lived beyond because at that point there was no understanding, like adding 10% to your lifespan would have been incredible, but here we are. So we have a longer lifespan. I'm of course, we all recall quotes like talking about the automobile would result in organ failure because of the speed of movement. Like there was a real sort of fear (laughs) of what this new thing was going to do. But with technology now and using the data that we've had and effectively, so here's the question, really, how much can we literally, if we said we stopped collecting data today, do you believe we have a meaningful set that we have not even truly tapped into with where we are right now? Well, it's, it's tough because what we see every day in concrete clinical studies where we build our products out you know, everything we do, for example, genetics, and we are a leader in, in liquid biopsy, in precision liquid biopsy. So the ability to take blood samples, profile the cell-free DNA in these blood samples and see every single molecule of DNA that carries any kind of variant on it across key you know, targets and regions. Very important for cancer detection, for example. So the ability to do that, you know, everything we do is proprietary and new. If we stop today, this data doesn't exist. So, you know, the trick is, I think there's a confusion in the industry where you think, oh, big data, it's great. We take all the healthcare data and then we see great things. Uh, the problem is that I think the most valuable data hasn't been generated yet because the instruments and diagnostics devices were millions of times less accurate than what we have today in 2020 and 2021. So I always use this example of PSA tests, like which is one of the very few protein tests that has some kind of cancer detection qualities. And what we do at QuantGene with the Serenity liquid biopsy is literally 8 billion times higher resolution, maybe 12 billion, depending how you count, uh, than a PSA test. The PSA test gives you one value back, your you know prostate-specific antigen value, like how much did we find of that stuff um, in your blood um, per volume unit. And what we do is we, we tell you the exact count of nucleotides that were variants in your cell-free DNA. And we are generating, you know, between 6 and 12 billion specific digital reads uh, from one sample. And it's, it's that simple. Like, we, you know, we are, you know, roughly 8 billion times an average higher resolution than a PSA test. And these numbers are new in medicine, right? You normally don't do something it's like, oh, you're here. How, where are you? Where are you? Oh, well, I'm 8 billion times higher. Like that's right. normally not happening. That's like, that's the paradigm shift here that we can go into a molecular level of detail and actually know what that means and can actually make sense of it and, and reading out patterns of cancer, for example, in these variants. So if we would stop today, I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't be very good. So because right now we're in a completely exponential phase with next generation sequencing, the, the cloud capabilities of processing this data, but also the AI capabilities of making some kind of sense of it. 
And I guess that's the interesting thing that, and it's, especially in the startup world, we, we unfortunately overuse the word exponential uh, in just meaning anything that is a, at a rapid scale, but it's actually not by true mathematical and literal sense. What you're doing is in fact exponential in its capabilities, which is significant. And that's when we look at stuff like quantum and, and the future of, of computing to do these things at incredible exponential pace. This is that, not, yeah. this is significant, right? And, and very that, real. It is absolutely true. It's very real, but there are two sides to that coin. One side is, yes, we have truly exponential generation of capabilities through data, AI, and cloud. Um, but at the same time, the, the pace of progress is absolutely not exponential. It's not even linear. And that's what I, that's what I wanted to point out. I think there is this disconnect in like a wide uh, stretch of the population that you think, oh, we're in this exponential time. You have Tesla and we have all that stuff and rockets. And we are sure in medicine, it's even more because you have now all these, what I just elaborated on. But there are forces that really work against that in medicine. Mostly the healthcare system, the insurance system, the government systems, not any specific bad player, but the inertia of the regulatory uh, framework that we created is extremely bad for many reasons. The incentive structures are super bad. And that leads to exactly what we see. We see a declining rate of progress in medicine, a, a very heavily declining rate of progress. So I just want to make a kind of red pill everyone, the, the, uh, the, the listeners, this is we are not in exponential um, progress trajectory for medicine. We are in a declining progress trajectory, but we have absolutely exponential potential so there is an exponentially increasing delta between, you know, potential and reality. And in my opinion, that's not sad. That is, it is sad, but it's also an enormous opportunity because it means that the vast majority of established players in healthcare are on the completely wrong track. And uh, that is why Quantine is built as a totally new type of company where we really embrace the paradigms of cloud and AI companies. Um, but don't shy away to add really deep, complex genetic and genomics technology laboratories. And at that convergence is really the, the big potential. Yeah, just in that in itself, even beyond the, the vastness of the mission and the goal, the vastness of the, I'll say sort of the system being wrapped around current practices and current methods is a very strong, unfortunately strong protective bubble to holding back a lot of innovation. And with the, the challenging part we all face, and this is a conundrum and, and that we always fight, right, is the, the ability to do things in a new way, ethically, safely, but also to increase the pace. And you become, that becomes a challenge, especially when it comes to human trials. And, and, and you know, it's, it's challenging for a lot of people to, they want more, but the moment we sort of ask that very personal question as the you know, politician looks into the camera and says, I'm, I'm talking to you, right? And, they, and they, they talk about a very personal story that said that you will be affected where you will have an unsafe drug or something. And, and we very, you know, we feel that's a visceral sensation, but at the same time, I almost wish it was the opposite where we should have a stronger visceral sensation that we can do more and we are we are very much held back by a lot of the 
the overall, like I said, I'm not, I'm with you. I don't want to point to a particular thing amongst the, the overall system, but it's a variety of, of actors, as we say, right, who collectively keep us at this very, very, you know, like I said, sublinear pace, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's really a, it's also a great opportunity for a company like Quantin. We are able to, you know, raise enough capital, not not the same amount as some other people, but I think that's also dangerous to over-raise. Uh, but we are, you know, well-financed. We are now on, the, on a good track um, to become break-even. And from there, we are indestructible, right? And we, the way we manage the company and build the company, I have no doubt that we have no competitor right now in the long term because it's a little bit like the Tesla you know, uh, paradigm. Once you understand your first principles and what you're building the company around and where the technology has to go uh, and you stick to it and you are not letting yourself get distracted by investors who don't understand what's going to happen um, and you can't afford to stay the course, um, you know, you're not just true to the mission, you're also building an absolutely exponential technology mode because it becomes impossible for incumbents to catch up. And I think Quanchin isn't there yet, but we are very, very close to that point. And the more I see other people doing dumb stuff and following, you know, analog thinking, um, I think it's benefiting us. I mean, it's definitely good that you know, I'm always torn. Of course, it's nice to have a smart competitor. It just makes everything more, but it's also very stressful. So we are, I think, in a very, most analysts in biotech would say I'm, I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> but I think in two years, everyone will think they were not crazy, but very lazy uh, in not understanding what's, hap what's happening here. So we are betting very hard on AI and cloud. Um, at the same time, we have the leading I think the leading tech on, on the biotechnology side. And the funny thing is a lot of incumbent like investor guys don't even doubt that. They see what we have, like, oh, this is very impressive. But you know, take I I tell you and your your listeners, because it's kind of funny if you are tech guys and understand innovation, how crazy biotech is. They, I have heard so often in my conversations, technology doesn't matter. It's all about relationships and commercialization. And you, like, this is the common, that's what people tell me. And, you know, you wonder if you know anything about Silicon Valley, about Tesla, about Google, about Facebook, like anything outside medicine, you would just think, are you crazy? Like, where have you been? Like, you really, literally in 2020, you tell an entrepreneur that he has the best technology, but it doesn't matter. I found it, like, nearly funny. It's a little absurd, the whole thing. But that's healthcare. They think like, yeah, you can have all tech in the world. This is an incumbent system and technology can only be sold to a large player. That's all you can do. And they think that's a good play. You can build this and sell it for 2 billion to Roche or exact sciences. It just happens all the time around us with our competitors or ex-competitors because once they're sold, they're toast in my opinion. <laughs> so that happened how often? Like now it's like the fourth time that happened to a key competitor. And... I tell you one thing, we are not going to sell. We are straight going for IPO. We are building the strongest consumer product and physician-facing product in the world with liquid biopsy and genetics, and I'm not deviating from that path. And a lot of investors that are conventional biotech folks, they say, like, this has never been done. That's crazy. Don't do it. Just sell it. And this is like this small-minded thing that I think 
you know, ultimately benefits crunching because it, it leads to a it leads to a situation where we just don't have any competitor, which is insane because I see so much talent, so much technology, so much interest in our field from an engineering and inventor perspective that it's amazing how how bad the conversion into strong companies is. It's amazing. And also even in Silicon Valley, some of the top players, I'm not going to name any names, but we know a bunch of VCs there, really smart guys, not even biotech, um, really top level VCs who go into our space, do the right thing at seed and series A and then get cold feet and then, you know, or bet on the wrong horse and then make a little flip and bring in the biotech guys and then the whole thing is toast. Yeah, this is the the conundrum uh, and sort of the dichotomy of of venture capital and and starting a venture funded startup that has especially a large potentially expensive mission. You know, if you don't, and a lot of them don't aim for break even, they don't aim for profitability, they don't aim for revenue funding as a maintain a way to maintain. They think of at least can I show valuation that will take me to the next next funding round and that will give me a growth number. And so they're effectively aiming for for the hockey stick. The venture capitalists, of course, the more that people open up the sort of sandhill playbook and and look and say, ah, okay, well, effectively they're on a 10-year run with any particular fund. And if you look at the way it breaks down, you realize the way that they're hedging their bets, it's not easy to get into healthcare. Uh, government, there's a few sectors that have extremely long development, sales, every every cycle of the area that you're in is frightening to a VC or even at a, to looking at a 10-year, you've got a 10-year mission, but those funds that want to come into you, they want a significant event to occur a few times during that, you know, ultimately they're driving you towards an event, which whether it's an exit, an IPO or whatever. So as you say, we are, I think we are now starting to take a better look at how funding's working and hopefully kind of leaving that, you know, sort of elite Sand Hill Road group, great folks. And I, I, I call that only because it's sort of the sort of most famous group that we know, but it's no longer that sort of billionaire boys club we are seeing other funding alternatives that are coming in that won't have the requirements for a 10-year exit. I mean, they used to be four years, right? That if you look when the 90s and 2000s occurred, they saw it was basically four years to the to a major event, and that was so. A 10-year fund had a potential to actually seed and exit a couple of times throughout the course of that fund, but now the time to an IPO is now 10 years. And it really, really changed the market. So I hope that the market is learning, and even more so, I hope that they're learning from you, because they see. I mean, Elon Musk had to write him write his company a check, one you know fateful weekend, or else they wouldn't. I mean, have Elon is like the exactly. I mean, Elon was the most unfunded, unfundable guy ever because he did so many things right, but in an innovative way. Like, right. you know, that's a funny thing. Like. And not to quote Elon here with his first principles, but it's also true for for investing. And and so many people, if you think Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, like all these guys, Bill Gates, they would never have gotten venture funding. It's that simple. Like no one would have invested in them. And there is a little lack of critical thinking, I think, in the venture community to think like, okay, that's kind of a bad thing. 
uh, know like, okay, no one would have funded Apple, Tesla, SpaceX, or Microsoft. That's kind of bad. Maybe we should like rethink, maybe it's good to catch these guys early. You have pretty significant returns. Um, but what, what I see is, you know, we get we are not getting criticized. We actually get a lot of admiration from investors who then decide to pass. I mean, some also don't pass. It's good for us. But, you know, of course, the majority passes. It's like normal. And what you often hear is like, oh, it's really amazing what you're trying to do. Um, but it's so new that, you know, we have to pass this time. It's like, guys, like, where is the money? The money is where things are new. Like if you always That's just right. replicate old stuff, like, oh, we invest in SaaS companies and you're a little SaaS, but you're also biotech and you're also AI. That's so scary. Like, no, it's not scary. That's, I can explain exactly why this is the biggest opportunity. So yeah, I feel if I had nothing else to do, it would be a lot of fun to start actually a new type of fund that is just smart. I would just call it smart capital or dumb capital, maybe that's even better, <laughs> dumb money. Um, and uh, you just look at opportunities from a financial and, and you know financial and value perspective, agnostically and say like, I don't care. I'm not specialized in any kind of field. I just want to see the best, biggest opportunities. And I think from first principles, I don't need to be a biotech specialist or AI specialist to invest in a company like that. I just have to be not lazy, look at the tech and understand the new business case because only if you construct these new business cases from a first principle perspective, can you catch disruptive innovators. You just say, I want a diagnostics company. You have to look like one and walk like one. Or I need a SaaS company or an AI company. This is boring stuff. You know, the, the future is at these conversion points. And especially if a business model is new, that's where the potential lies. It's, a, it's an amazing challenge in just even understanding human behavior of we, we see the, you know, we refer to them at, as oddities and outliers and, and because we don't see the pattern, the, the pattern hasn't been built leading up to their, you know, you know creation or, or their, the, us noticing them. And it's so funny in and in a weird way, sadly, quite often the world bets against it. Because in a way, they really they don't want to be what wrong, right? Or they don't want to have not seen the potential. It's I'd always think of the thing of like government as a system as well. Unfortunately, the it's tough to go in and, and change it. This is at large, not necessarily in the medical area. I'm, just, and I'm saying from my own personal view as well. I don't want to pull you into my personal opinion, but we realize that it's there's not too much change in the system because in effect the system is as much to protect the system as it is to protect the citizens in a way because it has to it can't have vast rapid change because we we may not be ready for it we may take tough bets and and rough turns and when you're looking at a large citizen you know pool who's your customer uh, you you have to they have to hedge they have to very much play those those yeah i totally bets. agree but that's also why our strategy is very explicitly to not go for medicare and all these things in the beginning i think it's premature um it's also a little too audacious to tell Medicare we want like $150 billion from them. <laughs> so that's what it would roughly cost to actually introduce that system nationwide for everyone. But it also would have an enormous impact on, on survivability. But that's why our approach is also very different from a conventional biotech approach where we say there are these low-hanging self-payer consumer markets, uh, premium employers, executive checkups, all these markets where people are more than happy 
to pay $2,000 out of pocket per year to not die. That's a pretty strong value proposition. And um, of course, we can't guarantee that you don't die, but we can very quickly show a decrease in mortality uh, in the cohort. And it's not even rocket science, right? It's just, okay, if you detect cancer early stage and do that for a thousand people, then and you will have a lower mortality. It's that simple. And no one contests that. So, um, and the only reason it's not getting paid for is, well, the tech is not ready yet, but we are launching something early next year. Um, and second, no one wants to pay for it uh, from a government perspective. They basically tell you we need overwhelming data um, but for private citizens and companies who want to take care of their employees, they don't need that level of evidence. All they need is show me the data and show me reasonable proof. It's more likely than not that this is very good for us. As opposed to, okay, proof without any doubt to people who really don't want to pay for it, basically force them, create a legal framework that forces people who hate paying for it to pay anyway. That is, that is basically Medicare. So... Yeah, you know? we definitely, it's the, and the, the whole thing of, like you said, I mean, prevention, there, you cannot move without finding an area of medicine or in effective, you know, behavior where preventative and detection are vastly more impactful on the outcome than dealing with, you know, obviously the, you know, once it's occurred, you know, we are getting better at that, right? And, and we, we even see this, of course, with, with COVID and stuff. At some points, they're saying, we need to now accept, you know, like, we know it's, it's coming, we know it's here, we know it's going to be here. And now how do we deal with it on the other side? But if we were to go back and you know, cancer is a great example, right? Not just a cancer, but multiple cancers. And, and that's, again, why when I've, you know, followed your story and, and looked at some of the, the work you're doing, it's, you've said, we need, we can do this all, right? It's, it has the markers, it has the capability, we have the data, we have the science, we have the technology. Yeah, and it's, it's another approach of Quantine, why we are different from a conventional diagnostics company, very, very different, is, you know, when you make these decisions, what you want to do, your conventional diagnostics with conventional biotech investors. They would say, okay, drop all your cloud stuff and your AI, pick one cancer, ideally a sub subset uh, of that cancer, like non-small cell lung cancer or something, and focus on that because then you do one thing and then you can get reimbursement and you don't give it to everyone. You give it for a tiny subset of the population that's at super high risk because then Medicare is going to pay for it. Um, but of course, you're then developing a super specialized technology that will never detect your colon or bladder cancer or stomach cancer or breast cancer. What we do instead is we develop a platform technology that allows you to see everything. You know, it's like developing the internet instead of like a delivery service yeah. um, or, or next generation sequencing or, or high throughput protein profiling rather than saying, oh, let's profile this one protein and try to patent it. Like, no, why don't we develop a technology that profiles all proteins that can ever occur on a high throughput level? Um, so what Quanchin is doing, instead of trying to, you know, go for a subset of things and try to get a tiny reimbursement for it, can we really drive the foundational technology that allows us to take, to look at a blood sample and see all of the mutations on all DNA fragments? 
can we then take that into a cloud context and connect it through an AI system with a pattern matching and pattern recognition system that runs that through all patients, uh, all clinical trial data to identify very deep, unprecedentedly deep patterns of mutations that allow us to profile diseases? And the answer is yes, we already did that and we are doing it. And um, we can also turn that into clinical value right away. Of course, on a low level of evidence compared to a highest level, right? We have, you know, five and a half thousand patients in the clinical trial and so on, but we don't have two million. And so normally the approach for that is if you, if you take a system as massive as this and pitch it to Medicare, they're going to say, well, come back when you have 10 million patients and can prove without any doubt all detection of all diseases. Right. And that costs you probably $25 billion and takes you 20 years. Instead, we say, well, it's obvious that this technology works. We can prove that it works technologically. We have deep technical validations. We have also first clinical data. And for you know these 2% innovators that you always have in any population, um, both on the consumer side and on the physician side, 2 to 5% of people who are the most you know, first principle thinkers and innovators, they have a very different calculus. They say, it's my life. If I get late stage cancer diagnosis, I'm toast. It's very, very bad. If I get the same diagnosis five years earlier or three years, and it's a localized stage one cancer, I'm out of the hospital after two weeks of surgery and radiation, I'm cancer free. As opposed to a terrible death, you know, stretched over two years with chemotherapy and everything. So what is the risk here, right? It's okay, the risk has cost me 2000 bucks a year. Okay, maybe I can't afford it. Then you know we can discuss what we do about it and how we drive prices down. But in the beginning, um, a lot of people can afford that and do that calculus. Well, is it worth doing that? What are, what is my risk of getting cancer in my lifetime? Well, it's forty percent. In case you didn't know, but forty percent of all people get actually cancer at some point. So it's a very high risk. And what is the delta and outcomes early stage versus late stage detection? Well, it's huge. It you know, your mortality goes down from 91% for most cancers down to below 10% if you detect it early. Okay, so I have a new foundational technology here that I can use. Is it perfect? No, but is it vastly better than the alternative? Yes. That's what a consumer who's smart or an engineer needs to know. Whereas Medicare asks like, okay, can you prove without any doubt that we will save money if we pay for everyone? That's like many magnitudes harder to ever prove that. Yeah, they want to see 95th percentile uh, accuracy in results within the economical range. And it's, so they, not only are exactly. they, they, they have to have data, but data that match with economics. And then they, unfortunately, like, like any insurance company, and uh, having worked for a few in my time, we also know that they're in the business why they have very smart actuaries who are, are going through statistical probabilistic bets that they will have more revenue than than output and yeah and it's a money it's a here's the main difference you as a person as eric right you are thinking a little bit about money but you're probably thinking more about your life right if, if you if it turns out these two thousand dollars you invest a year in a precision medicine solution turns out that in the end you're not doing the math like wait a moment if I get late stage cancer and I die very fast, it, that's only like 30,000 in chemotherapy. So if I spend 2,000 for, for, for 20 years, I already spent more. 
I rather spend this, you know, short chemotherapy and I'm dead, then I save some money. That's not how a consumer thinks that you think like, I rather am not dead and also don't go through this terrible thing. Whereas, whereas an insurance company that thinks exactly that is like, well, if we spend 2000 bucks a year, you really have to prove to me without any doubt that we spend less ultimately on, on the treatment. Now, in, in the way that we have to present these and the value, it is very important that we have that. Like I said, even if you tell somebody like you've got a, you've got a 40% chance of getting cancer and they went to their doctor recently and they got an all clear. So they think they're in the 60%. They don't, you, it's very difficult to create that understanding that you're, you're in the 60% today. Yes. <laughs> that, but Maybe. Well, you're, you and might you may not even be able because he may not yeah, have exactly. even properly detected, right? It's, it's, so we, but the moment you hear that, when your doctor says, we have found that you have cancer, no one would not sell their house, sell their car, do whatever, everything they could to attack that problem. This is, you know, stuff that Kahneman and Tversky should have tackled in like in the, it's there, right? The behavioral economics ultimately play out in the same way that we will always bet on a thing that we don't have in, as a tangible understanding. And it's, it's unfortunate, right? Because it ultimately plays out in how a business can develop around it. I'm actually more hopeful than that because, you know, I talk to a lot of people who are interested in what we are doing and I develop, you know, I always, it's super important to me personally that we bring this to everyone and to bring the price down and make this affordable and have the government pay for it. But I also have no illusions about how innovation has to work. In the beginning, nothing is understood by most people. It's understood by the innovators, by the first principle thinkers. And the good news is we have two to 5% of the population. Who is that? That's a lot of people. That's 10 million Americans or more um, who are very smart, right? And they understand, okay, I can, I can fool myself all day, but I'm not going to fool statistics and nature. And I know 90%, 95% might fool themselves all day, but I'm in the business of not getting fooled because I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a hedge fund manager. I have smart, I'm a smart journalist or, you know, I'm an analyst. And I'm not playing that game. I face reality and I want to be smart about my life. That's why you have people who do very smart financial planning, who do the right things, who get very wealthy by doing the right thing with money. Others do the right thing, you know, in, in planning their companies. And so this is the target group in the beginning who say like, you don't have to explain to me statistics. I get it. I don't want to get cancer late stage. And I understand I want to catch it early stage. So that market is what we are looking at first. We want to first get the people who we don't have to convince forever why it's smart to be statistically sound. We want to get first the people who say like, you don't have to explain that to me. I don't want to die. I get statistics and I know cancer is bad and early stage is much better. So, you know, I think that is a very significant starting market. And then you also have, it's, it's a joy for us as a company because we actually have very intelligent conversations and you know, these, consumers and customers also give us great feedback and improve the product. So we are thinking much more like, yeah, a tech startup, we like feedback, you know, you're dealing with complex software systems too. We have very smart physicians too. And for the physicians, it's the same thing. 
you have these two to five percent who are really smart and really forward thinking and you have a lot who are not and it's much better to deal with these two to five percent because they really love that stuff and they really add value and so to your physician thing if you if you go to i mean there the problem is there's this false sense of safety with modern medicine that you think just because the doctor says you're fine you're fine like the problem is medicine is not magic it's not black or white magic it is in the end science how the hell is your doctor going to know if you're fine like they don't have the instruments to know if you're fine they have no data they can look you in the face and then touch you on your arm say oh no cancer congratulations but why would they say you're fine i mean that's the big problem you're fine based on the current system of medicine that has nearly no way of looking into your body in at any reasonable resolution and so if they say you're fine what they mean is like well our systems didn't find anything suspicious it's like standing on the space station and looking down and you ask me oh can you see my car did i park my car at the, <laughs> at the walmart or at the at the whole foods like uh, no you didn't park. i can't see it at the walmart you're fine it's like yeah because you're on the space station you can't see it so <laughs> So well, the question even, is, do you have the satellite to actually look at that? Do you have proof that you can see stuff when it's there or not? You know, and it, it's an, an interesting thing that people do understand quite often. As a, so as a cyclist, I, I get this one very well, right? That for, for decades, people have been using, you know, doping techniques in order to increase performance at professional layers in, in, in any sport, effectively. And they very quickly just stayed ahead of the science that was there that they learned about microdosing. They learned about methods that they understood what the patterns were. That's literally a human figuring out how another human could detect something through science. You've got science against science, much higher difficulty. And so the human understanding that, like you said, you go in and today by every test of every marker that they have available in the current testing system, I show up in a checkbox, cancer-free. I take that exact same sample and in two years, run it against the new understanding of the, the genetic markers. And you'll find out that I've had cancer for five years or Thank two you. years, right? So it's like you said, we have an unfortunate sense of confidence that I went to my doctor today who are, they're, they're incredibly smart people. They've, they've taken on an incredible task. They're, they're, they're using science to the best of their capabilities but they've only got the current science available to them. And it, unfortunately too, is we've seen this testing in, in lots of studies, right? Which is where if you take 10 physicians or hundred physicians and you give them an X-ray and you ask them to provide an evaluation and they diagnose based on the X-ray, based on an understanding of an interview and they'll come up with, and statistically they have, it's not in good favor because they're using human uh, emotions yes, and, 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 and in history. that example eric the funny thing is yes if you give physicians 100 x-rays to uh, or the same x-ray to 100 physicians they come up with different things but the funny thing in our example is you're not giving 100 physicians the x-ray you're giving them nothing and then right. you ask about <laughs> so that's exactly the thing we invented basically a new type of x-ray well it's a totally different thing but you know what i mean yeah and and you know, in two years, we will look back and realize, well, you asked all these physicians if you're fine and you did not give them an x-ray, which is even crazier. And then, of course, then they don't have anything to look at. And 
you know, cancer is a super emotional topic, obviously, for people. And that's why our instinct is always to not think about it. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm probably fine. My, my physician says I'm fine, so I'm fine. But if you put on your critical thinking head, what is exactly the basis for your doctor to say you're fine? Most of the time it says, well, you're under 50, so you don't need to get screened, so you're fine. So they literally say, I have no idea about anything, but the guidelines say, I don't need to have any idea. Therefore, you're probably fine. That's not how it should go. But you know, just think critically, what data do they actually have? What do they make their, you know, build their opinion on? And physicians totally know that, by the way. If it would be so awesome, why do 600,000 Americans die every single year of cancer? That's two and a half times the casualties of World War II for America. So every single year. So right. I wouldn't say that's fine. That doesn't look like a very good system to me. So when did you know that you needed to do something and you thought you could do it? That's a very good question because that's exactly the two parts of the question. You know, when I did, I know I have to do something for a very long time. I come from a very medical family. I saw that firsthand behind the scenes. My dad is a very, you know, esteemed like scientist, microbiologist. So I saw all the shortcomings in primary care and how people just still die of infectious diseases because, you know, primary care misses out on very important. So I always knew, okay, this system is clearly a little flawed. There's tons of things and people actually die all the time because of these mistakes, unnecessary mistakes. Um, but I couldn't do anything about it. So I didn't know what to do about it. And in 2014, I just stumbled upon, yeah, I was a little bit in the space and looking at technology. And in 2014, I realized that we are really entering this, I don't want to use exponential again, but it's true, this exponential phase <laughs> On a technology level, sequencing technology became really mature, well, started to become really mature. Um, cloud and AI. And I, for me, it was always clear the next step in medicine is to turn medicine into a data science. And I knew that in 2010, you didn't have the data. You couldn't generate it. You couldn't right. process it. So I saw in 2014, okay, this the next five years will be pivotal. You know, in the next five years, we will get our hands on tools that are complete game changers that increase our ability of generating high resolution digital data on genomics, genetics, and other elements, and our ability to process this data and AI capabilities by many, many, many magnitudes. And I just had the gut feeling this is going to be a big deal. Because I was, for a long time, I had this idea or vision to turn medicine into a data science, and I knew what that means. It's, it's a massive acceleration of innovation cycles. Um, it allows you know, innovation at the, light, uh, at the speed of thought, like software, and it opens up this entire system of medicine and also hard biotechnology to this ultimate paradigm of software. Software is eating the world, and now it's eating medicine and biotech. And I think most people still didn't fully wrap their head around that or what it means. And so I love my job. I love doing quantine and being at that forefront because it's such an enormous opportunity. And I just love software architecture. I love cloud systems. I, I'm not the greatest AI expert. I love it, but we have smarter people than me on that front. 
Um, and biotech is just something I always, yeah, we are 3D printing here new new stuff right now that goes into our machines. And you know, to op to bring this together, how you actually run these assays, how you optimize the chemistry, but how you capture the data, how you optimize the workflows, how you turn it into cloud systems on a workflow level, but also on a data management system level and how you use AI on top of all of that. It, it's just paradise for anyone who loves that stuff. And, and then to have it connected with clinical outcomes and protecting lives. I don't know. I can imagine anything better right now. It is a, it is a beautiful time. I've, you know, been passionate about technology for as long as I can recall ever being exposed to it. And I, every year I say, this is the, this is the best year to be in technology because it continues to evolve. And I think you've brought up a very important insight, which is that it's important for us to look back and say that in 2010, we weren't, we were not capable with the technologies available to do what we can do now. And so as we see those advancements, that's why we have to, as we say, you know, move at the speed of thought and then think at the speed of technology, but because these will ultimately become this sort of flywheel acceleration where innovation occurs in the technology, you know, the advancement of cloud, and even people always talked about cloud, they said it's, you know, commoditized, uh, you know, technology and, and services as well. It, it commoditized availability to them, which is more important because we think of commoditized meaning made it cheaper. Well, no, you made it broadly accessible. Exactly. And that's really what's important is accessibility to expose it to people like yourself and the quant gene team who can now say, we have this technology, let's do something fantastic with it because we know what we need to do. And we know we now have the tools to do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's, it's also something that I'm a big, well, I'm, I'm a little bit a critic of AI, but of course, it's a huge believer at the same time. I know like the problems that will come up. And, uh, but I have no doubt that it's, you know, probably the most transformative technology step for, since a very long time, maybe forever. And that the 2020s will be decisive. Now, the thing is, you, if you think about commercial value, but also clinical impact, you need infrastructures that are AI ready, right? If you have an amazing AI and you go into 2010 healthcare, there's just nothing the AI can do. There are like no interface. There is nothing it can do. So to what we are building is basically an AI readiness for extreme precision and genetic technologies uh, where you have to provide the cloud systems and the underlying biotechnology systems to feed these cloud systems, to then have the AI at the center to actually do smart things. And right now our AI is more, we call it medical intelligence, not artificial, because it's a blend between our human experts, our clinical teams, uh, mach some machine learning and some neural nets. And this blend, you know, basically looks at the whole system, but it's really, I think our first important step with Quanchin is to build this biotech and cloud infrastructure around that brain. So the brain can even see all these things, which are completely, they were completely not even accessible and of course not visible before. And it's all taking a long time. It's all very complicated stuff, but that's how we think about it. You're building this giant infrastructure that makes, you know, creates a system of visibility and data availability and data management for, you know, millions and billions of times more data than before. Um, so we become kind of intelligence ready and then the next step will be to ramp up that intelligence. 
you you brought up an important point as well, which is one that especially in in medical and med tech in and anything around large data, uh, it is the challenge of of ethics of of data use and and there's a. I mean, how I'm curious, like how much does that weigh in on your choices when you look at what needs to get done? Because I, in a way, I'd think that you have to you have to push through some some challenging barriers because of it's the same thing at a consumer layer, a, a rather gross misunderstanding of how data is being used in and the I, I won't specifically talk about particular biases or whatever, but like we when we see one example and that becomes the very tangible thing is that we see one tangible example and immediately it sets the industry back by effectively months or or even years because we say we can't let that happen. Stop the presses. Well, I'm, I think when it comes to data, we, we take a pretty radical stance like on the spectrum. We are extremely protective of our customers data and we go beyond that. We basically don't do any backroom deals with insurance or pharma, even though they want that, especially pharma. And, uh, you know, we are never get, giving out any genetic information. Um, it's different for somatic uh, snapshots of your, you know, mutation landscape, because it doesn't tell anyone anything about you, your personality or you as a person. So that's more shareable, but only with consent of the customer. But when it comes to hereditary, your actual DNA, we are extremely protective of that. We think it's super dangerous to just allow everyone to see that, like most other companies do. They have all these deals. Uh, and so we take a pretty radical stance to be firmly on the side of our customers. And we are probably the most protected or privacy-driven company in the space. And it's also more aligned with our business model because we are getting the money from our customers and not from a third party. And right. you know that's what people always forget. It's it's the ultimate deal with the devil. This whole insurance business, right? That people think, oh, it's free. Like, no. First of all, you get ripped off with taxes and with premiums. And second, on top of that, they are ripping then your data off. And third, you're in a very bad position because they have no interest in you, you know, surviving or anything. They just you're not a thing for them. So I think it's a much more honest relationship of a company is like, okay, we protect your life, you and your family's life, and you pay us money for it. It's a much cleaner deal than saying, oh, I don't pay you money. I pay this premium to that person. And that person deals with you and pays you money. And then the insurance is your customer, not your customer. So that all, you know, is connected to privacy because, you know, you want to know who you deal with and where the loyalties are. If you give your genetic data to people whose loyalty and customers are not you, but they're in governments or insurance companies. I mean, guess what happens to your data? It's very simple. Yeah, it's, uh, and thank you. You know, uh, I am, I would, I would go into my PayPal uh, into a salute to Elon and I would send you 2000 of my dollars right now. Uh, <laughs> you're on a, you're on an incredible mission. You and the team are, are doing something and, and it's uh, we need more, you know. Is I think to to take sort of the jobs. One of the jobs quotes was, "You don't invent the iPhone by a committee, you know, exactly. and a focus group, right?" It's that is, is we have to have folks that are willing to make those sort of moonshot bets. But they're when we when we say even the, that phrase, it's it's not a bet in that it's a gamble. It's a bet 
that we know it can be done. It's the only question is, how do we get there? Exactly. And I think, I mean, you mentioned something in the beginning that, you know, it seems that people have a tough time identifying and isolating the patterns of successful innovation. Like we see this over and over again, and people make the same mistakes over and over again. And especially investors. I'm very critical with investors, even though, you know, I know many and some are my friends and they help us, but that's why I'm tough on them. Like I want even want them to be even better. And this instinct is always, oh, de-risking. Like, oh, there's only Joe and, you know, we need more, and there's Monica and Joe, but, you know, it would be nice to have more people, more and more people who do more and more things and they're all kind of the leaders. That's always the instinct of investors. It's what they call de-risking. Right. But de-risking, I mean, it's a fundamental principle of risk. Risk goes in both directions. The more you de-risk, the more you cut off your upside, the more you make it impossible to have disruptive innovation. And, you know, you want to de-risk once you're at the peak, right? You wait, if you wait 10 years and, you know, you have a market cap of a trillion, maybe you can de-risk, not even then in my opinion, but at some point, but in the beginning, you don't want to de-risk, you want to ramp up risk, especially upside risk. And you need someone, you know, you, you need companies that are led in a clear direction to your iPhone quote. And committees are not clear directions. They're just messing it up and staying, keeping it where it is. You know, as they said, a, a camel is a horse by committee, right? <laughs> 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 if, you're, if you're not careful, that's where we can get. Well, Joe, thank you very much. Uh, I'll, uh, we'll have links of course, to, to, uh, to quant gene in the, uh, in the show notes and, and thank you for doing what you and the team are doing. Uh, I, uh, I believe in, I believe in people, uh, I believe in missions you have two of two. Uh, so I, I wish you the best of success. I won't say luck because, uh, you know, success is truly what, what you and the team deserve. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I thank you a lot, Eric. I think what you're doing is also amazing to bring the word out about companies and entrepreneurs. Um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the most selfish person on earth because I learn every day so much more. And, uh, but it's, it's fantastic when I can see, you know, stories like this that come through that really are, you know, uh, truly have the potential to do something amazing and, and really, truly change the world. Sorry, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thank you.